0: Welcome to Moms Changing the World. This is your host, Akua Walker, Child Development Nurse Practitioner and CEO, Chief Encouragement Officer, introducing the new podcast, which is the place for moms to find encouragement, hope, and inspiration, where we're supporting moms in the trenches of motherhood. You will receive practical tips and strategies to address the developmental needs of your children with a positive parenting perspective in mind. Here at Moms Changing the World, we are moms on the journey of changing the world, one child at a time, one day at a time.
1: I have a a young man who has the urge to make the world a better place in my son. And I think of how like my father he is. So I would say, uh, other than the good story and the historical element, I think it might ignite something for each one of us as we read this book.
0: The inspiration for today's episode is from our home country, Ghana. It's a proverb called Sankofa. It is one of the adinkra symbols, which are picture symbols often used to tell a story, give inspiration, and can be found in art, clothing, and an array of printed forms. Sankofa is a silhouette of a bird that is facing its tail, and sometimes the nose of the bird is actually touching its tail in the picture, almost in a circular formation. The meaning, as I understand it, is that we often have to look back into our past in order to make sense of it and move forward better for having lived through whatever our past may hold. This has been an important analogy. I know in my own life, as I've better understood the history and the past of my people and my family and my culture and heritage, being from Ghana, West Africa, it's allowed me to take hold of my identity and to understand where I fit in the grand scheme of this great, big, beautiful world that we share. Sankofa in fanti or tree literally translates to go back and get it so that when you press forward into your future, you, like the bird, can spread your wings and soar much better for it. So listen into to this conversation as we look back at Awo's mothering journey and gain wisdom from that. And you'll discover how our family history connects to the history of Ghana's formation as one of the first African countries to gain its independence in the mid-1950s. Here we go. Welcome to Moms Changing the World. I am your host, Akua Walker, Nurse Practitioner in Child Development and CEO, Chief Encouragement Officer, bringing you another wonderful interview that I've been very excited to prepare for you. And uh, today I have an interview with my very own cousin, who it will be the first internationally recorded Interview for the podcast. She's actually working and living in Ghana, uh, our home country. You know, as we record this, which is which is very exciting. And so, I apologize in advance if there's any technical difficulties. But I'm excited that you'll get to know her. Um, She's such a great mothering story, great life story. And I'll introduce a little bit about her and her son before I uh, jump in and let her tell us more about herself. So. Awokwe Sinsaki is currently a human resources, finance, law, and general management professional with about 30 years of business industry. Earned her bachelor's at the University of Ghana, master's of law, and master's of business administration at Temple University in Pennsylvania. And she's held several management and leadership positions before now being the regional vice president for human resources at Newmont, Africa. In her current role, she collaborates with the human and the health and safety function to implementation of top-notch wellness programs and policies for over 5,000 employees and contractors at Newmont, Africa region. She loves to read, play scrabble, and exercise. She's also active in a new leadership foreign relations committee, and recognizes that foreign relations with Ghana has always been one of Ghana's strengths. So keeping that alive is the key to Ghana's future. And with a great connection in her history to that, which we'll talk more about later. Her son, take, Kovana, graduated from Emory University with a JD from Howard Law. He worked in the Obama White House, rising from intern to special assistant to the president, serving as chief of staff for the legislative office as well as a policy advisor. He moved from there to work for Palace Sports and Entertainment for the Detroit Pistons, where he served as Vice President, Public and Business Affairs. He played a key role in the move of the Pistons facility from the suburbs to their new inner city location. He appeared in the Cranes and Emory University's 40 Under 40 to watch. He currently serves as the chair of an executive committee for the Michigan Economic Development Corporation and served as deputy director for uh, Whitmer-Gilchurst transition in 2018 to 2019. And he's on the board of the Grand Canyon Conservancy that runs the Grand Canyon National Park. Very, he's also passionate about sports and family. So. Very excited to welcome you, Awo, to this uh, interview today. From Mom Changing the World, how are you?
1: I'm very well, thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, I'm so
0: glad that we get to have this conversation. And the the way that Awo and I are related is through my father and her mother. Um, they are one of eleven children, and so. As large families goes if you are part of a large family you'll know that it you know they, they can spread out around the world and so Owen and I have only kind of been in the same place at the same time you know once or twice in our in our lives so far but through technology and through I think, the connection of our family which is part of I think our family's legacy we, we I feel like I know her so much better we've been able to stay connected through other family members, through Facebook, and even this year with uh, Sheltering in Place 2020, we've had two kind of family reunions that have brought a lot of our relatives together from around the world. So this is this is very exciting for me. I will.
1: Yeah, for me as well. Yeah. <laughs> I grew up with your father. I mean, because our parents are siblings, we were around my mother's family a lot, and. And because there's so many kids in that family, 11 children, their ages spread from my mother, who was the oldest, to our aunt, who is only three years older than me. And your father was on the tail end. So he's not that much older than I am. So I actually grew up with him. <laughs> that is so great.
0: Was yeah. Great. Good, good. So I did You read your bio before we get started, but why don't you tell us a little bit, you know, about yourself in your own words and yeah, some of what kind of brings you to this conversation about mother, motherhood.
1: So I guess I would, I would start by saying that on the face of it, I'm probably more of a career person. Uh, If somebody watched how I operate, they'd say, oh, she's a career person because I've worked with corporations my entire life i had a short stint as an entrepreneur but i i also identify very strongly as a mother i have one child and you know i uh, at some points in his life i felt sorry for him because i've been in human resources most of my career and while it you know i could leave work at work very often he was probably suffering from being Managed by a human resources person with a department of one that he was in. So (laughs) he got the benefit of everything I learned about human resources as well as um, motherhood, as well as whatever I was developing myself in uh, during the time. So I wanted to participate in this because I operate from the premise that one person can change the world. And I have so Uh, I have so much admiration for your starting this, Moms Changing the World. And the fact that you asked me to participate is like, wow, of course I would. Of course I would. Uh, So here's another one person doing what she can to change the world. So that's why I'm here. Yeah, wonderful.
0: Thank you for that. And you know, as, as moms, I like to kind of start very practical when it comes to, you know, kind of feeding our families and some of the, the hands-on. And it's a little different for you with your son, you know, kind of on his own. But maybe take us back a little bit to, you know, what it was like. Maybe or some tips around feeding, you know, your, your child, especially as busy, professional as you were. Anything that you picked up along the way that, you know, might help mothers who are currently trying to juggle all of that.
1: Yeah, so I remember the day he was born and coming home from the hospital. I was on my own in Philadelphia with my my then husband and we brought the baby home and I freaked out. It was like, what do I do with this thing? So I remember <laughs> calling my mother and saying, I, I think I need help. Right. I don't Long know to what to room. do. Like, <laughs> right? <laughs> the baby's crying all the time and you know that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, and I, I went back to work after four weeks. Uh, uh, some of that was because I like working and I was fortunate. My mother did help me a lot That's in the honest. early days. So I was able to go back to work. And frankly, it was, it was difficult juggling. Even when I was married, um, I felt like my child sort of needed me. And we had a, we had a very tight bond from day one. I had someone taking care of the child at home, Awanate at home, and I remember the first week after I went back to work, she'd call me and she'd say he's crying all the time. And I had read somewhere that babies uh, like to smell their mother, so I I asked her to put on my my robe, yeah. and that worked. She would wear my robe all day, wow. <laughs> and he would be and he <laughs> would be fine. That. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a um, great, great tip for the husband. Yeah, and as a as a working mother, you know, I I, I pumped my breast milk at work uh, mm-hmm. even in those days. This was a long time ago when some of those newfangled ideas had had just taken root. And, and luckily for me, when he was four months old, he pushed my breast away. So I thought, okay, that's the end of breastfeeding, <laughs> and life became a, a, a lot easier after that. I became a single mother, and one of the questions I would dread as he got older was, what's for dinner? Uh, He called me at work and was like, oh my God, here I am working and I've got to think about what to to eat. And normally there'd be food in the house, but I think what happens with growing boys is that the food is never enough. So he would come home from school and Eat everything, and then call me and say, "What's for dinner?" And I'd say, well, "We're gonna have such and such." I ate it. I we're gonna have such and such. You know. So then I got in the habit of bringing stuff home from various takeout places. I wouldn't do fast food a lot. I mean, I did a reasonable amount, but I'd go to places where they would cook home cooked food. Uh, the joke in our house was that I would buy our home cooked meals. So. <laughs> So I I tried to make it as uh, as nutritious as possible and then on the weekends we ate out a lot. I was fortunate that I could I could do that. So it it added to the variety but also it added to our relationship because when you go out to eat you're more prone to sit down and have a conversation.
0: Right. This was before
1: yeah, this was before cell phones became the thing to take out at a meal. So we always had the uh, I thought the richest conversations I mean to the point where sometimes the restaurant would close around us, and we'd still be sitting there talking. Um, so, so it it was, food was a thing, but it also enhanced our relationship. So now, now we don't live together, but we plan weekends wherever I'm traveling. We meet somewhere, and it's built around. Okay, we're going to have dinner on night one. We're going to have brunch morning. <laughs> morning <laughs> so and they we'll have a, a <laughs> 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 yeah yeah we love looking at menus he likes looking at the exotic drinks and stuff and so yeah we our, our trips and our, our being together ends up being um, around the food thing
0: sure sure and you did some cooking of the some of the traditional Ghanaian foods on the weekends
1: oh yeah so uh, even now uh, he will cook uh you know chicken stew and rice or you know uh, light soup or th- ground nut soup or things like that. It's amazing because uh, he only started cooking after he left home. He wasn't cooking other than microwaving stuff in the house to warm things up. He wasn't really cooking when he was at home. So this was um, after college when he was on his own and he uh, actually started cooking you know, from scratch, cutting up the onions and tomatoes and, and all of that. Yeah. Great.
0: That's great. I love it. You know, hearing when kids, especially sons, you know, pick up some of the recipes and some of the, you know, the desire to make those home, you know, home-cooked stew foods. And I think every culture probably has its, like, chicken and it's like a tomato sauce paste, you know, um, yeah. gravy that you layer with rice or whatever, you know, starch that you have. And yeah, our uh, light soup in Ghana is kind of our dark chicken, chicken soup, basically, that, that we eat with you know, fufu or, um, you know, pounded yam or pounded contain. So yeah, so you're making me hungry right now, I have to say.
1: <laughs> 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 talking about it. Yeah. So recently he, uh, he's, uh, he's, started living with his uh, girlfriend who's of Polish descent. And so he, he would cook Ghanaian food for her oh. and uh, and she would cook Polish food for him. So yeah, it's yes. actually pretty yeah, that's cute. In the home. that's great. Good, <laughs> yep. good.
0: So if we go back to the beginning, did you always wanna be a mom?
1: Um, I think so. I thought more about what I was gonna do career-wise. So I know I always wanted to, to have a job and to look after myself. Uh, that I know for sure. I think I assumed I would be a mother. So it's not anything that was a desire. And then when I got to 24, 25 years old, then I decided I am gonna be a mother and I had a child. So there was never a question about whether I would be or not. I think I just assumed that I would. Yeah, and I'm so glad I did at the time. I mean, looking back, it was so conscious, such a conscious decision to have a child. And it's it's the best thing I've ever done.
0: Yeah, yeah. You yeah. Know? It, it is such a miracle, and really a privilege to be able to you know have that, whether it's a desire or it's something you take for granted, and then to be able to you know make that happen. And for some, it's easier than others. And so when it happens, you know, it, it really is a miracle and a gift.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And even going through some of the. You know, more difficult times. We we used to fight about bedtime. You know, I think a lot of parents do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, bedtime was such an issue in the house. You know, but so and so goes to bed at this time, and I, you know, I I I I would just say go to bed, and then he would say, well, then I'm not going to sleep. I said fine, but go to bed. Right. <laughs> and I remember one one day I walked into the, his bedroom and he was sitting lying in bed with his eyes open like that. And I'm pretty sure he slept, right? With arms, <laughs> arms folded, looking, you know, scowling with his eyes open. I'm sure he slept and he heard me coming. So he you know, got into okay. that position. Yes, open to that. Yeah. <laughs> right,
0: <laughs> but yeah, yeah. yeah. So you had inklings early on that you, uh, you were raising a world changer.
1: Uh, with that. So you're right. I did have inklings. I, you know, there were things that happened. He ran for office in his uh, middle school twice. I think, I'm not sure he won, but it was interesting watching him get involved with uh, politics, you know, and, and a couple of times I got calls from other parents. I remember one in particular, and she called me and thanked me for my son standing up for her son because there was some problem on the sports field. And I thought, first of all, I thought that was unusual for a parent to call to thank me for that. Mm. Um, But I also thought it was pretty cool that he did do that. Mm. And then I remember when he started driving, he had a car accident and the owner of the other car called and wanted me to know that even though they had had the, uh, the accident, my son was so polite and courteous in the process of working things out. So there are those kinds of things along the way that gave me some comfort that, you know, gets to a point where you know your job is done because you're not around the children anymore. And those things gave me comfort that, okay, so there's some solid values that I was able to impart in spite of of myself. (laughs) (laughs) That's great.
0: That's great. So then is motherhood, you know, what you thought it would be?
1: No, because the only example of motherhood I had was my mother. My mother had uh, six of us, and it was a mess. (laughs) It it was just a mess all the time. And I I, I don't think I was an easy child. My mother wanted me to be uh, a typical woman, you know, cooking and cleaning, and she did her best. I was not easy at all. So when I look at what I thought motherhood was and I look at what I who I am as a mother it's it's very different but I'm 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 glad that it's this way because I have a deep relationship with my son and I I didn't have a deep relationship with my mother I'm sure she had amongst the six of us she had a deep relationship with others but it wasn't necessarily with me so my view of motherhood is different uh, in my iteration
0: of it, sure, sure. And uh, you, yeah, you mentioned your mom, uh, who we affectionately you know, call Uma, and uh, she was my aunt. But you know, she um, played a huge role, I think, in in our family's you know legacy. I think by the time I was born, and soon after, my own grandmother passed away, and so Umma ended up playing that role of, of kind of a grandmother figure who I actually you know, grew up with and got to know with her visiting us and um, talking to her when she would call my dad. And so, yeah, I think because she was kind of the matriarch of the family you know, when I was growing up, she did play that very maternal, grandmotherly, kind of traditional you know, role, I think for many of us as, mm-hmm. um, as nieces and nephews, and of course, you know, her own children. So I'm very thankful you know, for, for that legacy. Of motherhood, I think that she right. established in our, our larger family, but yeah, um, yeah, we and we, we certainly miss her for that. And it, it, you know, it's a, it was a different era as well when she was raising her kids, when you know you were raising you know a and Even now, there's been several several decades, right? And, and motherhood, I think, as a whole, has changed, especially yes. the of this, yeah, us, yeah, who also work outside
1: of the home. So. so I, I remember uh, she, she uh, I remember when my son was a baby, I went out to as uh, well, maybe four or five months old. And I was, um, I had a pediatrician that I was listening to and he had suggested I get Dr. Spock's book, you know, so I had the book and I was feeding, breastfeeding until four months. And then it, the pediatrician said, okay, start oatmeal. But when I was breastfeeding my son, my mother wanted me to give him food. And I I said, well, yeah, the doctor said I should just do the milk. And she said, well, how would you like it if that's all you had? And I thought, yeah, but I'm not a baby. (laughs) And and so uh, there were times when she had an opinion that was different from what I was doing, right? And I I followed my doctor's orders pretty much to the T and some of the more traditional ways of, of mothering. Were the ways that she would recommend, and sometimes I would uh, obviously listen to her because my mother had raised six kids, but there were other times when I felt strongly about certain things you know like I didn't give my baby sugar at all, that mm-hmm. kind of thing, mm-hmm. and uh she would she would like she would she would not agree with that, things like that so it was it was interesting the ge- the whole generational <laughs> thing. dynamic was very interesting yes yes yes
0: and i yes, I think that that does bring up you know one of the the points around you know as yeah, I'm so thankful, you know, that my own mother was also able to help with, you know, raising the babies and coming to, to help nurture in those early, you know, early months and, and weeks. And there can be different traditions around how you feed a baby or how, how you know, how many layers you wrap around a baby, or you know, how you put a baby to sleep. I mean I mean, each, I think, not only generation, but each culture, right, has its way and its ways of, of doing things. And so I think I think most of us have had some of those conversations where, okay, well, you know, the, the doctor, the medical profession said, says this, um, and yet, right. you know, <laughs> the oral tradition and the family tradition or cultural tradition says this. Right. So yeah, I think those, but I think uh, you know those are opportunities, right? To to definitely learn about some of the history of, of how things have been done, and you know, I, I would just you know gently you know tell my mom you know that this is you know what what uh, you know we're doing now because of X Y or Z you know reasons or evidence, but at the same time you know there there is something about a, a grandmother's touch. Um, yes, there were certain things that no you know that she she just had her way, you know, even I feel like just whenever I handed the baby you know after a long light night of you know nursing and not sleeping, and I would just hand the baby to grandma and she was out you know, she was like. Just like <laughs> <laughs> My little <laughs> ones, like they would just be like, "Ah, oh, you know, there's a sense of home, you know, in, in grandma's arms, yeah, that they were they were missing." Um, I think by by the end of a long night, right? So, right, yeah, that's great. So, you know, speaking of kind of the generations and the the, the different eras um, that we, you know, are raising our children in, you know, you were raising a one I take, you know, in the 80s, 90s, and you know, the world culturally, some things around race and racism were. Were different back then, but um, we are also seeing that that some things are still the same. And when it comes to you know race relations and black and, and brown children, so you know with all that is going on in the world right now, you know how did you talk to Awanate about race and empathy in that time? And is there anything you would do different?
1: Yes, I I think that I would talk about it more. So you know Awenete did a Podcast recently, and he was asked that question about growing up uh, black. And he he made a comment that I had never really thought of before. He said that both his parents were raised in Ghana, so they didn't have the experience of being black in America, mm-hmm. um, and and he did. I mean that he was growing up there, so that so he said we were not very helpful. And looking back, I can see that that I wasn't because my experience was different. I had to learn to be discriminated against because it wasn't a way I was brought up, right? So, and I, I, I think looking back that I didn't want that to be an issue or to be the thing that he made into an issue. So I probably minimized incidents that perhaps we could have talked more about you know what's interesting that given that we talk about everything, it was I'm surprised that we actually didn't talk about it more. Living in Connecticut, which is primarily white, and the towns that I lived in, he started out as the only black young young person in the grade school. And I took him out of that grade school eventually because I didn't think he was going to be getting the kind of education that I wanted him to get. I started to feel that he was going to be treated differently and not given the same opportunities in that grade school. It was a public school. So I took him out of that and put him in a private school where there were smaller classes and he'd get more attention. And I could sort of monitor better how he was being treated. And I'm glad I, I did that because it gave him a whole different opportunity, and it, and was, it was a much more mixed environment. So he had, uh, he still had mostly friends who were white, but there were people of, who were Hispanic and other people of color in the school as well. And luckily, he got involved very early in sports, and to some extent, uh, sports, especially in, in schools, knows no color. So that was extremely, extremely helpful, and I. I made him do other things that were not traditionally. So I made him take dance classes, for example. It was, it was the dance classes, ballroom dance classes, where the kids have to dress up and go and do, you know, so I made him do things like that. Yeah. I'm sure he hated it, <laughs> but, but, but he was, he was, he was really good at just going with the flow. You know, I, I made him go to uh uh, I had subscriptions to the theater, so we went together until one day he said he wasn't going anymore. And um, uh, I, I remember that day vividly. We were getting in the car, and he said, "I'm uh, I'm not going today." And I said, "Why?" He said, "I don't want to." And I thought, "This is the first time he had he was saying no to me."
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, and so it was it was like, "Huh, okay, <laughs> this is interesting." This is very interesting. I said, "Okay, then I'll I'll go by myself." I, I'm pretty sure that if it had been my mother, she'd have said, "Oh, get in the car," right, know, like that. Right. Yeah, she'd have said something in in our native language and you know shut me up, like. But I, uh, but I said, "Okay," then I'll just go by myself. And I that was a pivotal moment. I think that was a moment where he, I think it was 11 or 12, started to really speak up for himself and and have a point of view. And how I acted in that moment was probably. Really important, in terms of him feeling that he could. So going back to the racism, I, I'm pretty sure he had more incidents than he ever brought to my attention. And now looking back, I just wish I had been able to help him more than I mm-hmm. than I was. Sure. Yeah. So
0: you know, driving a certain car in a you know certain neighborhood probably got him more attention oh. than not. <laughs>
1: So I I was fortunate because I was working that I was able to uh, get a very nice car off the executive car plan very cheaply. So when he started to drive at 18, I got him a Chrysler convertible. I mean, it wasn't a flashy car, but it was a nice car. And he would drive from uh, Washington, D.C., where he was living with his father, to Connecticut. And every single time he was stopped and was clearly profiling but he also would drive fast. <laughs> so I would, also, I would always say, well, why don't you try driving more slowly and see whether you get stopped? And I knew that wasn't the answer, but I, 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 I'm not sure that I knew how to deal with profiling and I just didn't want him to get into trouble. Yeah. So I would talk about, well, just make sure that you're polite and don't talk back and you know, I just did, I didn't want anything to happen. Of course, um, think, yeah, think,
0: yeah, and I think that you know, there's yeah, there's often no perfect answer, you know, to to a lot of these questions because it's not a perfect situation, it's not you know, that's it's not the ideal, and it shouldn't be happening, right? He right. Able to drive, you know, whatever car he he has from point A to point B, or you know, without being profiled, whether he's speeding or not, and so right, it, you you know, I think as parents. Um, I think, we're, we, you know, we can have grace with ourselves that we may not always have the perfect answer in the moment, but it, and I think we understand that it comes from a heart of love and support. And we, you know, we grow in our own understanding of, of race and how, how to talk about race with our children. And I think as, as moms and as, you know, currently in that, that, you know, place of trying to help my children understand I think I'm really trying to do what I can to, to read, you know, the books to for myself, to read children's books for them that give us a, a starting point for these conversations and kind of what you mentioned earlier as far as you know at the table. I think if we can, you know, put our cell phones, you know, aside, put the technology aside and use the family meal you know as an opportunity to have some face-to-face conversations about hey what's going on at school what's going on you know on the playground i think it is a very natural opportunity to have some conversations especially when they talk about something that you know didn't seem quite fair and we might, right. you know that there was a a cultural you know or race you know layer to it not that we you know, beat it over their heads at every meal or anything like that. But we can certainly, by educating ourselves and by being open to just having the conversations, I think the, like a family meal could be a great opportunity to delve into that.
1: Hey, you know, when he went to Emory, now I, I think Emory's in Atlanta and it's, it's uh, uh, I think it's still a predominantly white school. But when he went to Emory, the pictures he took made it seem like it was a black school. I mean, I'm not sure that I saw pictures of a lot of uh, white students because that's not who he associated with. And what's interesting is he ran for office and he uh, became the head of the Black Students Union at Emory. And during his tenure, there was another student published an article about how black, uh, I may not be remembering this accurately, so I'm just sort of Uh, recounting my memory of it, how Black people have smaller brains and aren't as smart. There was some inflammatory article that was published Mm -hmm. in the school paper. Mm -hmm. And it caused demonstrations in Atlanta and at the school. Mm -hmm. And he was head of the Black Students um, Alliance, I think it was called. And I just remember us having some conversations at that time. And he was obviously older, about the actions he was taking and you know meeting with the board of directors of the school and whether the school was doing enough uh, on the subject or or not and i mean other than just being proud of him for taking a stand there was also just the opportunity that i had to engage with him and to 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 you know to formulate my own views in one sense but also to helped shape his, as well, and for us to agree. I don't think we disagreed about very much on the subject, but yeah, it was a huge opportunity for me as a mother to to participate in his thinking.
0: Mm-hmm. Great, great. And so, yeah, I mean, it sounds like he's all kind of leaned towards the the grassroots, you know, politics, and uh, and you you know mentioned his interest in sports that you know he he now works in. Uh, where do you think you know he got this desire to be involved in politics. You know, in the intro, I read that he worked in the Obama administration and was a policy advisor. And he now is a a leader in the sports, for a sports team. So where do you think he got this desire?
1: So um, interesting, because I'm not at all, (laughs) maybe (laughs) in the next life, but (laughs) politics and sports are things I stay away from. And I'm a a musician, more more that. And I, you know, I I actually, made him take guitar lessons. And I was trying to find a musical thing for him. So he took piano lessons for a bit, didn't work, tried violin, didn't work, guitar. And the teachers would also always say that he was good. In fact, he could have been talented, but he, it was just not his thing. So I i think part of it may have been just in our heritage Is my father. Uh, my father was a politician, diplomat, by the time he was my father was forty he was president of the first black president of the General Assembly by the United Nations
0: mm-hmm.
1: he was ambassador f- from Ghana to the United Nations but he became the first black president of the General Assembly of the United Nations which had nothing to do with Ghana uh, it yeah, was yeah. Uh, an elected position within the UN
0: okay
1: so my son knew about that but I think he instinctively got interested in helping people, contributing to people. His father was like that. And my uh, second husband, his stepfather uh, was very much into sports and politics. And he spent probably more years with my second husband than that he had with his own father. And I think that shaped his life a lot. I, I would come home from work and they'd be watching some political commentary together or watching sports together. So I think in his formative years, he spent a lot of time with people who were interested in those things. You know, and thank God, because I'd have turned him into a, a musician dancer or something. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm so glad that he had those other influences. Well, and there's nothing wrong with being a musician dancer. <laughs> no, nothing wrong at all. But when I see how, okay. how well how happy he is with the things That's that right. he's picked as as his interests. I'm That's really right. glad that my my say didn't rule the day. <laughs> right. <But> I, I <laughs> and I, say, I think when you went to high school, yeah, sorry. I was just going to say,
0: I think those things expose children. I think whether they end up, you know, following the the guitar or the piano, or I mean, they, they, we know that they expose children to kind of the possibilities that are out there and it's good for right. development. So, yeah, it, it was yeah. a fun thing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, and then I think when he went to um, he went to a private, a Catholic high school, Saint Anselm's in Washington D.C., and he was living with his father at the time, and he started playing basketball there. And he he was a teenager. Teenagers act out, and later on, Awanate told me, told me a story about Coach Murphy. So my son had apparently was acting out in class, and knowing. My son, the story he, stories he tells me about those times are are like very interesting to me because he wasn't, that's not the son that I knew, but that was him with teenage hormones mm-hmm. raging. Mm-hmm. And so he told me a, a story about, you know, how he would act out in class. And one day Coach Murphy said to him that if you don't stop, I'm going to kick you off the team. And that conversation altered his life, Coach Murphy, Murphy became a father figure for him, mm. in my view, mm-hmm. and really helped to channel those uh, hormones and uh, acting out things into basketball. He eventually, Awanate eventually became captain of the basket, co-captain of the basketball team, and I go to D.C. to watch his games, and he was a star. I mean, it was mm-hmm. just. So wonderful. And I really, I'm glad that he had those other influences in his life and that it wasn't all left up to me. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah, And, you know, that does, uh, yeah, that does remind us as you know, as parents that we, and as moms, we have a lot of say as to you know who we bring into our children's lives, especially when they're very young. Right. And so, you know, we, we have to be really kind of mindful, you know, about the, the people yeah. that, you know, we are spending time with or that we are bringing into the home because right. like I, I say, children are sponges and they are absorbing, you know, the influences um, of not just us as their parents, but, or us as their moms, but everybody you right. know, who's, who's in their lives. And so, yeah, by putting them in lessons or sports, you know, th- those are connection points and mentors as well who will speak into their lives. So that's right. a, a great reminder. Good, good. So you know, another kind of uh, break for uh kind of the practical tips, and I think this year with with quarantine in 2020, we've had some you know some opportunities to you know snack a little bit. you know some of the the favorite snacks have kind of come out because we've been home more, and you know the kids are, like you mentioned earlier, always raiding the pantry right, and always trying to find you know those those snacks. Were there are there some some tips around snacks that you um, either like now or maybe in Ghana that you see as being quite popular because of the times or or not?
1: So we also we always had snacks in the house, and if I was raising him in Ghana, I, I would probably gravitate towards things like plantain chips, which are you know mm-hmm. pretty healthy. Probably baked potato chips. I've become very a little bit of a Fanatic about around healthy eating, yeah. and what's interesting is so is he yeah so you know he watched himself he, he my son's six four, so he can carry mm-hmm. a fair amount of weight he's tall, but he's slender he went through a phase where he was a little heavier and I don't think he liked it, so he started watching what he eats and so he he sort of manages himself to to stay at a healthy weight so uh, he lives in a household now where he doesn 't have a lot of snack foods and where he think he practices intermittent fasting and uh, you know stuff like that just to sort of mm-hmm. make sure that he stays healthy looking and healthy uh, physically but in those days when he was growing up, feeding a boy i't i, I, I can 't talk about feeding girls, but i 've talked with enough mothers about feeding teenage boys that Oh, my God, there's one woman I know uh, knew from work who had three teenage boys, and she said she had to have like three refrigerators. She had to <laughs> just buy milk to every day. She had to buy milk every day. yeah, just to feed, <laughs> you know, feed the boys. <laughs> I, I had a, I had a little bit of that. And so you know, I, I, uh, today I probably wouldn't have a lot of snack foods in the house, but in those days, just anything to, <laughs> to,
0: right. to uh, uh,
1: quiet the hunger and, and right. take the, the brunt off of mealtime. I, you know, it's fine with me. And a lot of um, things like macaroni, macaroni and cheese in the box that he could make himself or chicken nuggets that he could make himself and, you know, stuff like that. I would have tons of that stuff in the house.
0: <laughs> yeah. that's the, the backup yeah.
1: foods oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. absolutely yeah. yeah
0: yeah and you know speaking in you know being in ghana i think one of the the favorite snacks of mine for my visits and trips to ghana the fried plantain uh, or oh yeah kill like, Kel- Kel- yeah on the street corner oh my goodness if you know any any of the countries that have plantain and who fry it you know Know what I'm talking about, but you know, I think especially right. on the street corner in Ghana, I mean, with I think it's coconut oil or something that they cook it up in that just makes it extra special.
1: Yeah, it's actually the spicing they put on it ginger yeah. and yeah. and garlic and pepper.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, Kilowei is my it's my addiction. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's yeah. it's hard not. to. And actually, um, my uh, Awanate and his girlfriend were traveling from, driving from Newport, Rhode Island a couple of weeks ago, down back to uh, Washington, D.C., and they stopped at my sister's house. And uh, Angela, his girlfriend, said that, oh, she loves fried plantain, so my sister's husband said, "Oh, let me make some for you." So they actually <laughs> they actually had their dose of uh, fried plantain right then and there. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah.
0: Good, good. Well, you know, I see you as a you know mom changing the world through you know your own work in international business, raising a world changer through your son, and now as an author you are putting together you know, a book that will be you know, soon to be released. So would you tell us a little bit
1: about your book? So the book is the memoirs of my father. My father died 20, 28 years ago, almost. Yeah. And before he died, he started writing his memoirs because he lived at a time when Ghana was becoming independent. Ghana became independent. He was one of the first 10 people trained to be part of the diplomatic corps. For Ghana, so they, you know, they picked ten people, trained them in how to be diplomats, and then scattered them around the world. And he was one of those people. So he didn't finish writing the memoirs, but there's enough there that I have typed up the manuscript and I have um, added some things I'm not quite done yet. But it's a, I got a couple of young people who are, you know, two generations away from me. They're in their twenties to do some of the editing. And this was a story they didn't know. I mean, they'd heard about Alex Saki, my father, but they didn't know the story of the time. And they loved editing the book because they learned so much about Ghana mm-hmm. uh, in the 50s, about how Ghana was set up for independence, about how the UN works, about the other African countries. And I learned a lot about myself just uh, typing the book. About decisions that my parents made about us children, for example, mm-hmm. and I've, I'm a member of the Council for Foreign Relations, Ghana, and I've given the book to two of the to the president of that council and the vice president to just read the book, and let me know. And they came back and said, "Oh my God, this has to be published. Mm-hmm. Uh, this there was a gap in history around Ghana's foreign relations because my father was instrumental during that time." for publicizing Ghana as a nation. Yeah. And one of them said he's spoken to the president of Ghana about it that and told him some of what the book says. And the, so like, okay, we have to publish this book. So so the pressure's on. Yeah. But I think just from the standpoint of uh, a country that's only 60 years old. Very young. Which would make young, yeah, very young as a nation. Mm-hmm. Okay. It would make us kind of in our teenage years, which may be the reason why things are the way they are right now. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's important not to forget that there was a fight for independence. It's important not not to forget that there were people who were instrumental in that fight and who had a vision. And the vision is one that would probably serve us well even now, which is that the way Africa has been set up was a function of colonial greed, Mm -hmm. essentially, and resources and the divvying up of resources. And as independent countries, I don't know whether each one of us is sufficient enough to survive on our own. So the survival may depend on a more Pan-African point of view and a more collaborative mode of operating across Africa. That was the dream back then. And I think that is probably still part of the solution. I went to a talk. Uh, Wally Soyinka, the Nigerian author who has published a number of books, spoke yesterday for the council and he yeah. talked about that a little bit. And the, the solution has got to be in collaboration across, uh, at least across regions, if not across the continent.
0: Yeah.
1: And I'm hoping that publishing my father's book, um, it'll be his second book, uh, the first one came out in the 60s. Publishing the book will reignite some of that. Um, Fire, that that fire. Yeah, that's a good word for it. Mm -hmm. That fire. Mm Yeah,
0: great, great. Yes, and um, we'll be recording uh, another bonus episode to talk even a little bit more about some of uh, that history. But that's wonderful. That I think part of leaving a legacy for our children is in telling some of these stories that would otherwise you know be forgotten. And I think African cultures and many cultures around the world have an oral tradition. And so it's all about the storytelling, you know, from one to another or in group settings. But one downside about just the oral alone is that you have to, it's like the game of telephone, right? You have to remember what you said <laughs> and you have to put right. it on and it gets a little bit changed and a little bit, you know, massaged and things get left out and things get added and so i think it's wonderful that you're able to use some of you know the this year as a, as part of one of the silver lining of having to kind of hunker down and focus inward i think to to produce something that is kind of can be can be left on the shelf or just left in the memory banks
1: right and you know one of the things um so one of the byproducts of the lockdown and covid is that my siblings my two brothers and my sister and i do a sibling call every saturday evening mm-hmm. and so, you know sometimes we have nothing to talk about so we just hang out together it's it's actually pretty cool mm-hmm. and my uh, brother the one after me said that his his two kids who are in their 30s are spending a lot of time asking him questions about life and and we we all said we missed the opportunity to do that with my parents. My parents died early. Uh, my father was 68 when he passed away. My mother was 75, which in my view is early. And so we didn't actually ask a lot of questions about their lives. We didn't engage with them. So we, we're, we're now seeing that as a lost opportunity. Mm-hmm. And when you're younger, you actually don't care. Because <laughs> we, had, we had, yeah, we've had plenty of opportunities to, to mm-hmm. ask, mm-hmm. but, um i would say that as as mothers as parents or if uh, even as children of other mothers that it's important to know some of this stuff because it impacts our our it impacts us now right and it impacts what we pass on so I, I would say that as a tip just tell the stories whether the kids want to hear them or not tell the stories right <laughs> they will appreciate yeah. it someday <laughs> they will appreciate it someday listen i still have my sons first pair of shoes. I still have the sweaters that my mother knitted for him. I, I still have his first tooth. One day I asked him, do you want these things? He said, no, I'm just going to throw them away. No, so I still have them. I'm actually going to give them to to Angela when they yes. get married. Yes. I think she'll treasure them. That's, you know?
0: right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Good. So, you know, um, and, you know, as we're winding up, one of the things I like to ask about is, is balance because you know there's a lot that you juggle, especially when you're you know professional and you're doing projects like writing. and then anyway, it is different when your children are older, but you know they, they still connect with you, right? You still have a relationship. It doesn't end when they're 18 or when they move out of your home. And so what, you know, what advice, you know, now, and even when you were a younger, you know, mom with younger children, how, how do you, you know, how did you balance and find joy in juggling the multiple things that, that we do, you know, especially as professional moms?
1: That's the hardest thing, isn't it? It's the hardest thing. I just, so the, the thing that I did, even in those days was I, my son had to be number one. I'm pretty sure that he didn't always feel this way. I was always the last parent to pick him up from daycare. He was generally the first one there. Mm-hmm. Um, and on, when there was snow days, there was one snow day where he sat in the car for hours with one of the teachers because I just couldn't get from Hartford to Hamden. Mm-hmm. Um, it took me hours, you know, so he has those memories. But, but I think he knew that he was always number one as a priority. He could reach me anytime. Mm-hmm. The reason I got a car phone as soon as car phones came out was part partly for that reason, because I traveled a lot for work. I didn't want a situation where my son could not reach me. So to this day, if I see that he has called, I call him right back. Yeah. It's, it's that important. I know that there are times when it wasn't ideal, but I think that the thing, the thing that I'm left with, because I heard him um, talking to somebody once that he he knows that he's important to me. Mm-hmm. And he stopped thinking about the quantity of time that we spend and more about the quality of time that we spend together. Mm-hmm. And the time that we spend at any point in time is always such a peak experience for, for me. I would, And I hope that it's that for him as well.
0: Sure, sure. That's great. And then, you know, how do we, you know, how do you approach self-care, you know, even still being as, as busy as I'm sure that you are, you know, in your work and um, in the priorities that, you know, you're, you're still na- navigating. I think, you know, taking care of ourselves is very important, you know, even as we prioritize um, our children and our families and our homes. So what advice do you have in regards to self-care and how you navigate that?
1: Yeah. So my appreciation for self-care has developed more and more as I've gotten older. So, so as a new mother, I think self care goes out the window.
0: <laughs> I have to, <laughs> have to be honest.
1: Especially if you're working full time. is okay. the The books say you should sleep eight hours a day. Good luck with that. You know, it's yeah, tough. But uh, but I, but I always, I always would work out. Exercise was always an important mm-hmm. part. And and so, and I think my son does that as well. So mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure he. May have gotten it from me, but probably more from the sports ethic mm-hmm. uh, than from me. But it's helpful that it's something that we both value. Yeah. And now that I live alone, I make sure that Saturday mornings are sacrosanct. You know, I, I do my meditations every morning. I mm-hmm. exercise every morning. Mm-hmm. But on Saturdays, I don't schedule anything. Well, I have a couple of calls that, I, that are scheduled. But I spend the morning uh, doing a real thorough workout. And then my luxury thing. Yeah. I love bath bombs. Oh yes, <laughs> I'm a, I, yeah. I lay in the tub for at least thirty minutes with the latest bath bomb. No phone, nothing, and just luxuriate. Mm-hmm. I try to do that every Saturday. So I, it's most Saturdays anyway. And I just, you know, I just make sure that my my uh, I've I've got my physical, emotional, and spiritual health praying and meditation, all that mm-hmm. as a priority,
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's, it's, it's that important. I'm, I'm 66 and I want to live longer and more peacefully. Mm-hmm. So I've made those important as part of my um, habits, my morning habit stack and my nightly habit stack.
0: Yeah. So. That's wonderful. And I, I think, I love that you, you know, are, you know, even if you, you can just pick one thing, like the exercise that you mentioned early on, If you know, you can pick one thing, that you can do, you know, if not every day, even if it's just a few minutes of it, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be half an hour, hours, you know, every single day. But even if you just do a few minutes of that workout every day, and it's that one thing that you do for yourself, for your body, it adds up, like you said, you know, over the years, right? You're doing that you're giving your body back that physical time and then right. those special things that you do as well you know and and also the yeah the, the grounding in, in your spiritual you know practice your faith your meditation all of those things all you know even if yeah. you're just doing it for a few minutes each day you know those few minutes add up and layer into um, meaningful meaningful kind of change and care uh, and groundedness that everybody benefits from
1: yes Right, so one thing I've learned is to, so I, I think I mentioned my morning habit stack and my nightly habit stack. So I have a list of things that I have developed over time that are important to me my meditation, my prayer, my exercise, my food, how many hours I sleep. So I have them on a checklist, and every day in the evening, I check to see whether I did them. I don't leave it to chance that I'm going to do them. Right. So every day I check, and if I don't do them, that's fine. But if I haven't done them for a long time, then I take note of that because those are things that I have found uh, make me feel better right. in terms of my self care. So right.
0: that's great. That's great. Good. And um, as we are, you know, concluding, any last things that you had wanted to say that we didn't get to?
1: But just I, I love being a mother, and. You know the times I wish I had more kids, but I didn't, and I am so I feel so blessed, so lucky, and so proud to have the one that I have. And uh, this is a relationship that I I actually use to gauge the health of my other relationships because it's one that I know both of us, uh, my son and me, have invested in to make sure that it's a good, solid one. You know. Time to time, I've asked him the question, is there anything that I've done that you're holding against me? Or is there anything I've done that we need to talk about? Because I don't want anything left hanging or anything in the background or anything getting in the way of us loving each other. So,
0: That's great. Thank you so much for sharing today.
1: Thank you for having me. That was the
0: interview with my cousin, Awu Kwe Sinsaki. Make sure to tune in for the bonus episode where we delve in deeper into the book that she's writing, compiling the memoirs of her father, uh, my uncle, Alex Kwasinzaki, and his role as the first ambassador of Ghana. To close the episode today, I'd like to lead us in some time of reflection around the theme of Sankofa. I introduced this at the beginning of part one to the interview, but Sankofa, idea, proverb, and picture depicts a bird facing its tail in order to then move forward, with the idea being that we often have to look back in our past in order to move forward into our future. So I'd like to lead us in a few minutes of reflection, and I think it would be nice for it to eventually be a journal reflection or a journal meditation that you can spend some time writing later. But for now, Let's just spend some time thinking and reflecting together about your own Sankofa experience and the ways that you can press forward and stronger to change your world. So whether you're sitting in a chair or lying down in a bed right now or standing or even walking, give yourself permission for the next few minutes to just focus and reflect As you listen to the sound of my voice on Sankofa, settle in and feel grounded in whatever that surface is that's holding you up, feeling the contact points from your skin in your clothes to the surface. And if you're not driving, feel free to close your eyes and block out the distractions. Empty your hands so that you can really take some time to reflect. As we do this, we bring our attention to the breath as you're breathing in through your nose, out through your mouth, just regular breaths. And I invite you to find your anchor in your breathing. So whether that anchor is focusing in on the breath coming through the nostrils, cool coming in, maybe a little warmer going out, or perhaps the rise and fall of your chest With each inhale and exhale, or even yet still, the abdomen, belly breathing out and in. Use this as your anchor. When your thoughts drift away or you feel lost, always come back to your breathing and your anchor spot to center and ground you. So, as we take some time to reflect and look back on our own personal story, Think back to when you were a child. What memories come up for you as you reflect on your childhood? Where you were? How you were raised? What situations stand out? And then if you can go back further and you know the story of your parents, think about their lives and their childhood, where they were, what was going on in their history, how they were raised, and think about how their childhood and their upbringing perhaps impacted you and your family story. And if you can go further back, knowing the stories of your grandparents, think about where they were raised, what was going on in history when they were children in formative years, how might that have impacted who they are and how they turned out to be, how they raised your parents, and then how your parents raised you. And go back as far as you can, reflecting on the stories and the situations in the generations that you are aware of. And as you're reflecting back, especially on your own childhood and your own upbringing, think of the positives. Think of the bright spots. What are some of the joys, the triumphs, the celebrations that stand out? And in addition to the high points, there are always often low points or challenges. Maybe frustrations, maybe disappointment, maybe even trauma. Hold space for all of those things right now and notice what emotions come up as you reflect on the highs and the lows. Whatever feelings, whatever emotions arise in mindfulness, they're all okay. Make space for them all because it's in the highs and and the lows, the challenges, and the frustrations, that we can grow. And we can learn to not judge our emotions, but we can feel and experience them for what they are, and for what they have to teach us. So as you start to come back, to the present and to the moment, you might think about one hope, one inspiration that you can gain from looking back at your story. You might hold that and and celebrate that with pride. And for the challenge or challenges, you might ask yourself, what would help you to move forward with it or to move through it? Because often when we get stuck, we are holding tightness and we are bottling at an experience that we have yet to move through. And so if we can find a way to see it as the waves of the ocean, thoughts and emotions coming and going, we can often find a way to move through even the toughest of experiences. So as you come back to the room and prepare to Open your eyes or prepare to return to whatever you were working on before. Take just a few final breaths, maybe three to five breaths in and out. To just return gently and easily back to the present, the here and the now. And then you might think or make a plan for writing down the reflection, that time, and the things that came up during the reflection that we just walked through and really making time, maybe 15 minutes, maybe 30 minutes to to jot down some of the stories, some of the thoughts, some of the emotions, and the things that came up during that time. And I'll conclude with sharing a little bit about my Sankofa journey in that I have had Sankofa moments as. I've grown up and come to this season in my life. Growing up in originally in Ghana, I have memories that are so sweet of being surrounded by people who looked like me and talked like me and loved me, to so then moving to America when I was four years old. And as amazing of opportunities and as rich of a time with my family as we had and as privileged as I felt to have experienced all that I grew up with here in California. I was also surrounded by people who didn't look like me and felt sometimes like a stranger in my own land. And so when I went away to college, I remember sorting through and trying to figure out, you know, who I was and where I fit especially as an African and in America and recognizing the divide that I sometimes felt between Africans and African-Americans. And so in my college years, I was fortunate enough that the Sankofa film actually came to Stanford campus in my undergraduate years. And according to Wikipedia, Sankofa film is a 1993 Ethiopian-produced drama film directed by Haile Jirima, centered on the Atlantic slave trade. The storyline uses the journey of a character named Mona to show how the African perception of identity included recognizing one's roots and returning to one's source. The word Sankofa derives its meaning from the Ghana Akan language, which means to go back, look for, and gain wisdom, power, and hope, according to Dr. Anna Julia Cooper. The word Sankofa stresses the importance of one not drifting too far away from one's past in order to progress in the future. In the film, Sankofa is depicted by a bird, and the chants and drumming of a divine drummer, Jerima shows the importance of not having people of African descent drift far away from their African roots. I imagine you can still access this film, but I can remember that I dressed up one of my Ghanaian outfits, so excited to be able to go and screen this film with other Africans, African-Americans, and many who were not. And while I'm watching this movie... I hear Ghanaians, you know, speaking my native language. I can understand what they're saying. And I feel almost transported into the film and experience it right along with the main character. After the film, I was able to have some great conversations with my mother that I still remember today and other people who had seen the film or who hadn't seen the film. But we were able to wrestle together with what it meant to be African in America and around the world, wherever we are in the diaspora. And I know that that was one of my Sankofa experiences that continues to shape the pride and the identity in my heritage that I carry with me today. So I hope this was helpful in beginning to reflect on your own Sankofa experience and would like to close us in a time of prayer. Dear God, we come before you as God of the Holy Bible, who is the creator of heaven and earth, and creator of each of us. In the Psalms, it says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, each unique and individual and wonderful, formed and fashioned for a unique and important purpose. And I am so thankful for that purpose that you've placed in myself and in everybody who is under the sound of my voice right now and in everybody in the world. We thank you that our backgrounds, our childhoods, our adolescents, our young adults, our middle adulthood, our older adulthood, wherever we are in the journey, that it's all an important part of the story that we have to tell about our own lives and the story that we share with our children. So God, I invite you into that, that journey, into that process, into understanding it, into embracing it, into learning and growing from it so that nothing holds us back from being all that we fully are and are meant to be. We thank you for providing us the strength to travel through whatever challenges and traumas may be in our background in order to find hope and inspiration, healing, and courage to press forward and give us the words uh, and the stories of how to share our own journey with our children in a way that provides them a foundation to have their own Sankofa story and experiences as they grow up, and that they may also find pride and strength from the family story that we can pass on to them. So thank you for hearing and answering our prayers. your son's holy name, Jesus' name we pray. Amen. for listening to Moms Changing the World with host Akua Walker. The information shared on this show is meant for educational purposes only and not intended as a substitute for medical intervention or professional therapy. All views shared on the show are that of the speakers only and do not represent any institution. To be a part of the community, visit www.momschangingtheworld.org. There you'll find ways to connect with and support the moms we interview. Join us next time for more encouragement and support to be a
1: mom changing the world, one child at a time, one day at a time.
0: Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Thanks for listening.